Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. The following was a public lecture presented as part of the conference entitled 450 Years Pioneering Catholic Education, Past, Present, Future, and was the 450th anniversary conference for the founding of the English College at Dowie, organized by the Center for Catholic Studies of Durham University, Ushaw College, and St. Cuthbert Society of Ushaw, held at Ushaw College in Durham from the 30th of April to the 1st of May, 2018. The public lecture was by Professor Eamon Duffy, of the University of Cambridge, and was entitled, To Do Our Country Good, Dowie, Rome, and the Tridentine Seminary. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the lecture this evening. It's great to see so many of you here. Um, and just so you have some background on it, that some people have been here all day, so if they're looking a bit tired, give them a nudge, because they've been at a conference that's been going on. Um, so, of course, this lecture is to mark the 450th anniversary of the foundation of the English College at Dowie, which, of course, Ushaw is the successor for. So over 200 years this site, but 450 years old as an institution. Or if you really want to get polemical, you can look at the descent of Dowie that says it comes from Cambridge and Oxford, but we'll leave that fight for another day about whether it's that old. Um, so just to give you an idea of the context, what we've been talking about today have, has been looking at the roots of the English College at Dowie, the seminary movement that it sprung from, the wider field, if you like, the exile movement with the colleges and convents, and with martyrdom and the English mission. And if you like, we're going to leave the exile period behind today with the last of the Dowie papers, which will be by Professor Eamon Duffy, who I'll in introduce in a second. And then tomorrow we'll be launching, and with the public lecture, into the return to England, the, then the current situation as it was at Samuels, and then looking towards the future and where we can build, as Usher itself is currently building towards the future. So I say you're very welcome tonight, and we hope to see a lot of you tomorrow, and to see a lot of you at the future celebrations that are ongoing to the 450th here at Usher. And in particular, I would mention in a three weeks' time the lecture by Reverend Dr. Peter Phillips, who will be talking about one of Usher's famous sons, John Lingard, dare I say, Eamon Duffy 200 years ago. Um, and so, as I say, you'll be very welcome at that. So, to introduce tonight, we have Professor Eamon Duffy. He doesn't actually need too much of an introduction. He is Emeritus Professor of the History of Christianity at Cambridge University, and also an honorary fellow at Durham University through the Centre for Catholic Studies. His work is, of course, well known, especially the stripping of the altars and his history of the papacy. And he has a new book coming out called Royal, Royal Books and Holy Bones, Essays in Medieval Religion, which will be coming out at the start of June, if I remember correctly. And tonight he's going to be talking to us about, to do our country good, Dowie, Rome, and the idea of the Tridentine Seminary. So without further ado, thank you. Eminence, Bishop, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure, as always, to be back here in Ashore. Dowie College, the most important English counter-reformation institution in Europe, opened its doors on Michaelmas Day, 1568, just five or six months short of 450 years ago. The Council of Trent had ended just five years earlier, and it's often been said that Dowie, in fact it was said by James this morning, um, 
that Dowie was the first Tridentine seminary. That's not true, but there's a, there's a grain of truth in the claim. Trent's 23rd session in July 1563 made Cardinal Poole's legatine plan for English diocesan colleges the basis for its momentous Canon 18 on diocesan seminaries, probably the council's most important single piece of legislation. But its actual implementation, even in Italy, took decades, and in southern Italy and in many other parts of Europe, centuries. Though probably not the first, Dowie was certainly one of the earliest attempts to embody the council's legislation for the preparation of priests. But the differences between Dowie College and other early modern European seminaries were at least as significant as any similarities. For a start, uh, Dowie was not an Episcopal foundation or a diocesan seminary, which was the essence of the Tridentine legislation. But I want to argue that the urgent need to confront the Elizabethan settlement at home profoundly shaped the formation on offer at Dowie College, at any rate in its first generation, and it rendered William Allen's enterprise in founding the college unique in Counter-Reformation Europe. And the first thing to remark about Dowie is that it would never have existed at all if Philip II had not chosen a quiet, cloth-making, undistinguished town in Artois as the location for a new militant Catholic university. Dowie was chosen by Philip for its staunch loyalty to the old Reformation, uh, the old religion in the 1530s and 40s. It was strategically located near the border with France, and so it was well placed to counter the spread of Protestantism into the Walloon and French speaking uh, Low Countries. Philip intended his new university to complement the older foundation at Leuven, the intellectual bulwark of Catholicism for the Flemish and Dutch-speaking Netherlands. The establishment of the new university in 1562 expressly pour l'augmentation de la sainte foi et religion, religion catholique et l'extirpation des heresies pour I love that Poululant, uh, was part of a general shake-up and reordering of the church in the Habsburg Netherlands. Its most startling aspect was the creation of 14 new dioceses out of the existing four Dutch sees in 1559, uh, which was intended to energize and equip Dutch and Belgian Catholics for the struggle with militant Calvinism. For the English exile community, which was based largely in Leuven, the brain drain which was created by the need to staff the new university at Dowie was a godsend, an instant job opportunity, which the pool of mostly desperately impoverished English academics, displaced by the collapse of the Marian project and Elizabeth's succession in England, seemed providential. 
Dowie's first chancellor was an Englishman, Richard Smith, formerly Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford. Uh, he'd been a lecturer in Leuven, uh, who'd cannily published an astonishing group of four uh, high-profile anti-Protestant theological works in 1562, just as Philip's um, search committee arrived in the Netherlands uh, recruiting senior staff, and he was appointed as uh, the first rector. And over the next few years, English and Welsh exiles featured prominently in the U U new university's professoriate. Owen Lewis, who became Cardinal Borromeo's vicar general and then bishop of a Neapolitan see uh, at Cassano, uh, had the chair in canon law and became rector of the university. William Allen himself, who became a professor first of catechetics and then of dogmatic and controversial theology. And most distinguished of all, Thomas Stapleton, who would teach at Dowie for two decades before going on to Leuven, uh, where he was professor of scripture, and whose best-selling gospel commentaries about uh, which more later shaped parish preaching across counter-reformation Europe well into the 17th century. And it was out of this eagerly proactive counter-reformation ethos at Dowie University that the English college emerged. William Allen, 36 years old in the year of Dowie's foundation, uh, Dowie College, that is, rather than the university, and formerly a fellow of Oriel College and principal of St. Mary's Hall in Oxford, was a Lancashire man who, with his tutor and friend and mentor, Morgan Phillips, had been a very significant figure in the defense of Catholicism during Edward VI's reign and its restoration in Marian Oxford. He was present at the burning of Archbishop Cranmer. In 1561, he joined the exodus of Catholic Oxonians to the Low Countries, one of the dozens of out-of-work academics who established themselves very precariously in Leuven, many of them living communally and pretty squalidly in two houses nicknamed Oxford and Cambridge uh, in Leuven. Alan... Uh, after an illness, went back to England and worked for a while rather successfully in trying to harden opinion in Lancashire against the Elizabethan settlement. But he left England for good in 1565, came back to Leuven, where he formed a momentous friendship with a canon lawyer, uh, Jean de Vondeville. Vondeville had been born in Lille in 1527, and he ended his life as Bishop of Tournai, but at the time that he and Alan became friends, he was a married layman and a member of the Grand Council of Malines. He was an ardent admirer of the Jesuits, as indeed Alan was. And he was dismayed by the ascendancy that Calvinism had established uh, in Artois, especially at Tournai. His spiritual director was a very notable figure, Martin Ruthovius formerly Chancellor of Leuven, who in 1559 became the first Bishop of Ypres, uh, one of Philip's 14 new bishops. Vondeville's relationship with Ruthovius was very close. 
and his influence on his spiritual director was at least as great as his director's influence on him. Vonderville was a passionate advocate of tertiary education as an instrument of counter-reform. He campaigned even before Trent for the establishment of seminaries to train clergy. And he was the author of the academic memorial which clinched Philip II's decision to establish a university at Dowie. So he's a really significant figure. His spiritual director, Rithovius, was a participant in the Tridentine debate which enact, uh, and the enactment of the seminary legislation. Uh, he shared Vondeville's enthusiasm for colleges and seminaries as a bulwark against Reformation. And in 1565, Rithovius, as Bishop of Ypres, established a diocesan seminary, which possibly is the first Tridentine seminary, uh, for his own diocese. In 1567, two years after his return to Leuven, Alan travelled on pilgrimage to Rome, uh, along with Morgan Phillips, his tutor, and with Vondeville. Vondeville had recently been uh, uh, elected to the chair, uh, the Regis Chair of Canon Law at Dowie. And Vondeville's reason for going to Rome was to persuade Pope St. Pius V to establish seminaries for mission clergy to convert and Latinize the Greek and Maronite Christians of the Near East. But 1567 was a very bad year for any client of Philip II to seek a favorable hearing from Pope Pius V, who, although a saint, was a very bad-tempered man, <laughs> currently enraged by what he took to be Philip II's half-hearted handling of the Calvinist rebellion in the Netherlands and his refusal to invade Geneva. So Vondeville never managed to get an audience with the Pope. But on the long homeward journey, he discussed his aborted scheme with Alan. Alan was never a man to pass up a possible benefaction, and he persuaded Vondeville to transfer his enthusiasm and his considerable wealth from the remote project of the conversion of the Greek East to the more attainable recovery of the British West. Vondeville's project of a missionary seminary dedicated to the reclamation of schismatic and heretical Christians, in his case Greeks, for the Roman obedience, bore fruit the following year in the establishment of a similar enterprise aimed at England and Wales. The traditional accounts of the foundation of Dowie all suggest that Vondeville was persuaded by Allen's eloquence to back the establishment of the college, but the situation may actually have been the other way round. Allen's own thinking at this stage may very well have been shaped by the English exile's experience in Leuven in the preceding few years. Our first purpose, he would write later, had been to establish a single college in which the scattered English exiles might study more profitably together than apart to secure a continuity of clerical and theological training so that there would be theological competent clergy on hand for the good times when England became Catholic again 
be they near, be they far off. His words. And he wanted to establish an orthodox Catholic alternative to Oxford and Cambridge to snatch young souls from, in his phrase, from the jaws of death. But Vonderville, by contrast, clearly felt from the outset that Dowie should have an explicit missionary dimension. In 1568, he told the Spanish authorities in the Netherlands that the students at the new college were to be specially trained in religious controversy and after two years sent back to England to promote the Catholic cause even at the peril of their lives. However that might be, from its inception, Dowie College was certainly an institution orientated towards a mission to England. In Gregory Martin's words, to do our country good. Specifically, dedicated to religious debate. The mindset of its staff and its students were consciously confrontational. Founded in part as an academic home for clergy who'd been displaced from their university and cathedral posts by men that they despised, as in, in Alan's word, heretic jesters. Its senior personnel had all been participants in the Marian campaign to purge Oxford and England of Protestantism. Its first leaders were all protagonists in the polemical literary fight back against the Elizabethan settlement, which had got belatedly going, uh, really puzzlingly late in 1565, seven years after the, the settlement. Just as significantly, they were also acutely conscious of the precariousness of their own status as refugees in the Low Countries, as the waves of violent reformation lapped at their doors. I'll say something more about that in a moment. A key figure here was the most distinguished early resident of the college, Thomas Stapleton, whose controversial writings and scripture commentaries would earn him a reputation and an influence in counter-reformation Europe, which rivaled that of Robert Bellamy. Before migrating to Dowie, Stapleton had been part of the British expat community in Leuven, and he'd been, uh, by accident, present in Antwerp during the iconoclastic fury which gutted the cathedral and the churches there on August the 19th and 20th, 1566, and the experience left an indelible memory. He was traumatized by it, and he referred more than once to the horrible and outrageous sacrileges of that night and a conviction that such atrocities were the inevitably malign fruit of the Protestant Reformation, an eternal document, as he wrote, of the gospel-like zeal of this sacred brotherhood. That sense of militant embattlement was accentuated by the fact that the recusant community in Dowie in the late 1560s and 1570s included not only a growing number of clerical students and staff at the English College itself, but a stream of other Catholic exiles displaced from Elizabeth's England. Just 18 months after the college's foundation, that stream was swollen by northerners in flight from the aftermath of the 1569 
rising of the Northern Earls and the Elizabethan regime's furiously punitive response. 300 people hanged in this part of the world. And to clinch the general sense of precariousness, in 1578 the college itself would be obliged by the rising tide of anti-Spanish feeling in the Netherlands to relocate to Reims, a second exile that precipitated financial and existential crises for the college, which were to last for 15 years. So unsurprisingly, a fundamental aim of teaching in the college was to instill into its students a vivid horror of the evils of Protestantism. As Alan himself explained, by frequent familiar conversations we make our students thoroughly acquainted with the chief impieties, blasphemies, absurdities, cheats and trickeries of the English heretics, as well as with their ridiculous writings, sayings and doings. Specifically, the teaching was aimed to fire mission by arousing what Alan called a zealous and just indignation against the heretics, who, in his view, had laid waste to England's traditional faith. So the students were reminded of, again in Alan's words, the utter desolation of all things sacred there. Our country, once so famed for its religion and holy before God, now void of all religion, our friends and kinsfolk, all our dear ones, and countless souls besides, perishing in schism and godlessness, every jail and dungeon filled to overflowing, not with thieves and villains, but with Christ's priests and servants, nay, with our friends and kinsmen. Now, in some ways, of course, Dowie was much like other counter-reformation seminaries. All seminaries had to equip their students with the essential pastoral skills, teaching, hearing confessions, and the preparation in these areas at Dowie was not very different from any post-Tridentine seminary in Europe. The devotional regime at Dowie was um, ardent but pretty standard. Daily mass, frequent confession as an instrument of spiritual direction, frequent communion, devotion to Our Lady expressed in rosary sodalities on the Jesuit pattern, training in the use of the breviary and the celebration of the revised Tridentine liturgy. All of that was absolutely standard. For catechesis, they used Trent's Catechismus ad Parochii, as well as the rather better and more user-friendly catechisms of Peter Canisius, as most other seminaries in the late 16th century did. The twice-weekly uh, twice exposition of cases of conscience at Dowie, an essential preparation for hearing confessions, was supplemented with material that was specifically geared for England, but basically was... Uh, founded on the most popular of early Counter-Reformation textbooks of moral theology, the Enchiridion for Confessors, by Francis Xavier's uncle, Martin Azpilcueta. Uh, he was called uh, Navarres from uh, the place where he was born. 
and seminaries all over Europe in the 16th and early 17th century used the same textbook. And doctrinal instruction at Dowie relied heavily on modern Jesuit scholastic interpreters of St. Thomas. Uh, and again, that was routine for the period. But Dowie differed from other seminaries more than it resembled them. Trent had stipulated that candidates for the priesthood should be trained in grammar, singing, ecclesiastical computation, sacred scripture, ecclesiastical books, the homilies of the saints, the manner of administering the sacraments, and the rites and ceremonies. Only the emphasis on scripture in that list was novel. That was the syllabus that any well-educated medieval priest would have followed. But in actual practice, through most of Europe, Trent's call for scripture study remained a dead letter. Serious biblical training was conspicuous by its absence from most 16th and 17th century seminary syllabuses. These focused overwhelmingly on practical pastoral skills and they neglected dogmatic theology as opposed to catechetics and to the almost total exclusion of any serious engagement with the Bible. The late Thomas Deutscher's studies of the curriculum at the pioneering seminary established by Carlo Borromeo's disciple Carlo Bascape in the Piedmontese diocese of Navarra showed that the course of studies there was conditioned by the need to equip priests quickly for parish life and that involved giving them only what was deemed essential. Theological and scriptural study was not deemed essential. Uh, it was widely believed that country congregations would be confused by subtle explanations of doctrine or of scripture. And similar practical and very limited syllabuses were followed even in major centres like Rome and Bologna. Few students, even of the Jesuit Collegio Romano, studied dogmatic theology or scripture, despite complaints by Cardinal Bellamy, who was worried about the decline of theological expertise in Italy. And although the regulations for Borromeo's seminary in Milan followed Trent in prescribing scriptural study <coughs> as part of the syllabus, in practice, most students didn't do any. You only progressed to scripture study if you were, went on to the higher level of studies, which relatively few students did. By contrast, the account of the English College's syllabus, which Allen set out in detail in 1578, laid overwhelming emphasis on expert knowledge of the Bible, constant practice in preaching on the Bible, and in disputation, and a good grounding in dogmatic theology through the study of St. Thomas. Now, the study of St. Thomas, as I've said, would have been standard in most seminaries uh, at one level or another, but the emphasis on scripture was almost unique. It was, of course, the needs of the English mission that dictated that distinctive emphasis on Bible study. 
but we need to grasp just how distinctive it was. Allen was intensely aware of the crucial importance of the vernacular Bible to the success of the Protestant Reformation, and he was determined to eliminate the advantage that this gave to the Reformation. Gregory Martin's Catholic translation of the Bible, the Reims Dowry Bible, specifically the publication of his New Testament in 1582, was integral to this project. Our adversaries, Alan wrote, have at their finger ends all those passages of scripture which seem to make for them, and by a certain deceptive adaptation and alteration of the sacred words, produce the effect of appearing to say nothing but what comes from the Bible. And the remedy for this, he thought, was an authoritative Catholic translation of the Bible into English, a project for which, if papal permission could be got, he said, we already have men most fitted. And the man he had in mind was Gregory Martin, who had played a key role in the early establishment of the Roman Venerable College in 1576, and who, when he got back from Rome, had at once begun offering a course on lectures in of lectures on the Hebrew Bible at Dari to enable his students, in his words, to confound the arrogant ignorance of our heretics. So even before Martin had begun to translate the Bible, the course of studies at Dari was designed to ensure that the students there, like their Protestant opponents, would have the Bible at their fingertips. Between three and five chapters of the Old or New Testaments in Latin were read aloud at each of the two main daily meals. Just think about that. Uh, followed while still at table by an exposition of part of what had been read at, during which the students were expected to have pen and paper to hand and to take notes uh, with their Bibles open in front of them. In three years, the Dowie students heard the Old Testament read through 12 times and the New Testament 16 times. And each student was expected to do private preparatory work on the passages which were to be read communally there was a daily lecture in the college on the New Testament. There were separate Hebrew and Greek classes and regular disputations on the points of scripture controverted between Catholics and Protestants. The language classes, the biblical language classes, were given by Gregory Martin, who was one of the ablest of the many young men from Oxford that Alan recruited. He, he was from a Sussex Gentry family, and he'd been an outstanding Hebrew and Greek scholar at Oxford. Uh, with Edmund Campion, uh, he'd become a fellow of St. John's in 1564. And Elizabethan St. John's was a nest of papists uh, at that time. More than 30 of the first generation of Jonians left Oxford for ordination at Dowie or Reims and almost a third of Martin and Campion's cohort of 20 founding members of the college became priests, Catholic priests. And biblical studies in Oxford at that time uh, was largely run by crypto-Catholics. 
George Etheridge, the Regis Professor of Greek, deprived in 1559 for refusing the oath of supremacy, remained in Oxford tutoring private pupils right through the 1570s. Um, and there were, there were lots of others. Martin resigned his fellowship and left Oxford in 1568 and went to Dowie, and uh, he persuaded Campion to join him there in 1571. But Campion then moved on to Rome and, and membership of the Jesuits. Martin stayed in Dowie and from the mid-1570s was teaching Bible and biblical languages in the college. And in 1578, in October of that year, he launched on the mammoth project of translating the whole Bible single-handedly into English. He worked uh, from the Latin Vulgate, <coughs> inevitably given that Trent had privileged that uh, above all other versions for doctrinal purposes. But in fact, he made constant reference to the Hebrew and Greek. He turned out copy at the breakneck speed of two chapters a day for two years without intermission. He died immediately afterwards. <laughs> These chapters were then checked and corrected by Alan himself and by Alan's colleague and uh, deputy, Richard Bristow, and they supplied the notes to the published Bible. In addition to consulting the Hebrew and Greek texts, Martin paid close attention to previous Protestant translations into English, and despite his scorn for those translations, he borrowed liberally from them. His New Testament was published in the year of his death, 1582, at the height of the national panic about popery triggered by the trial and execution of his friend Edmund Campion. His Old Testament had to wait till 1609 before the college had the money or the political will uh, to tackle the immense task of getting it to press. Now, unsurprisingly, Martin's trawl through the English Protestant Bible translations was not motivated by an open-minded quest for the best phrases. Uh, what he was looking for was evidence of the wickedness of heretical translators in perverting the true meaning of scripture. And he turned up hundreds of examples, which he published in a 300-page tract in the same year as he published the New Testament, a discovery of the manifold corruptions of the Holy Scriptures by the heretics of our day. It's a relentlessly hostile case for the prosecution, designed to show that all Protestant translations systematically deny some whole books and parts of books, call others into question, and expound the rest at their pleasure so that they fester and infect the whole body of the Bible with cankered translations. I've discussed the strengths and weaknesses of Martin's New Testament elsewhere, and I don't want to repeat myself here, but some points need to be made. Notoriously, his translation was laughed at at the time and ever since for its impenetrable Latinisms. His version of the Psalms and his rendering of the epistles of St. Paul especially were notorious. Purge the old leaven that you may be a new paste as you are azymes, for our Pasch Christ is immolated. 
For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the rectors of the world of this darkness, against the spirituals of wickedness in the celestials. Uh, these are often quoted. But by and large, those kinds of problems only arose in the lyric and argumentative parts of his translation. Martin's versions of the Gospels, like his translations of the narrative books of the Old Testament, are vigorous and idiomatic. They can stand comparison with any Tudor translation, and they're more literal than most. And many of his distinctive turns of phrases were improvements on the renderings that had preceded them, and phrases that passed from him into the authorised version of the Bible include the footstool of thy feet, why, what evil hath he done, throng and press, his raiment was white and glistering, set at naught, strive for mastery, to live is Christ and to die is gain, questioned among themselves, blazed abroad the matter, mourn and weep, it came to pass, distress of nations, they questioned among themselves, and forever and ever. And Martin was well aware of the oddity of many of his Latinisms, but he considered they were the price that had to be paid for faithfulness to the original. We presume not, he wrote, in hard places to mollify the speeches or phrases, but religiously keep them word for word, and point for point for fear of missing or restraining the sense of the Holy Ghost to our fantasy. And many of his Latinisms, in fact, passed into the language. In the Epistle to the Romans alone, his coinages include separated, consent, impenitent, propitiation, remission, concupiscence, revealed, emulation, conformed, instant, and contribution. But it's not the translation I want to focus on uh, now. It's the notes and editorial material, which is not by Martin. No one could mistake the ferocity of the notes and commentary that accompanied the translation. And modern readers are bound to be perplexed and repelled by its bitterness. And that's not a new reaction. When he revised the Reims Dowie Bible in the late 1740s, Richard Chaloner removed almost all the notes and commentary as too harsh and rebarbative for the polite 18th century. As it happens, we have an unexpected window into the source of these relentlessly polemical commentaries and notes. And the key figure here is not Gregory Martin, but his slightly older and much more famous colleague, Thomas Stapleton. In his remarkable literary celebration of Counter-Reformation Rome, Roma Sancta, which he wrote immediately after completing his Bible version, Gregory Martin described the course of studies at Dowie. He breaks away from talking about Roman things and says, I, I want to tell you about the English college at Dowie. Uh, it had just moved to Reims, but anyway. And he emphasized the intensive instruction in biblical knowledge, which I've been 
pointing to are so distinctive of the syllabus there. And Martin was, in fact, summarizing a letter of 1578 in which Alan had set out at enormous length the syllabus. So he had the letter in front of him. But he adds one new fact that's not in the Alan letter. He says that the daily lectures at meals on the New Testament were given by, in his words, one of the elder divines, a master in the faculty. And that elder divine was Thomas Stapleton, who began his teaching at Dowie uh, as a lecturer in scripture, and who moved on in the 1590s to be professor of scripture at Leuven. And in Leuven, he would publish two hugely influential sets of gospel commentaries, which were drawn to my attention by a marvelous paper by Bill Shields, uh, given here a few years ago and published in the volume edited by uh, James Kelly on early modern Catholicism. The more substantial of these was uh, which appeared, the first volume of which appeared in 1599, was Stapleton's Promptuarium Morale Super Evangelica Dominicale Totiosani, which was a pastoral commentary on the gospel readings for Sundays and feast days. Designed, as he said, for the instruction of preachers, the reformation of sinners, and the consolation of the devout. It ran through an amazing 30 editions in 30 years. And it became a regular feature in clerical libraries uh, from Spain to Hungary. The Promptuarium Morale offered detailed verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the Sunday Gospels, and it only rarely referred to current events. Um, there are references to things like the Jesuit missions in Japan uh, and occasionally to Reformation events. But by and large, it aimed at being timeless. It's full of citations from the Fathers, from scholastic theology, uh, from preaching. And it's designed to give clergy material for their Sunday homilies. But he also published a Promptuarium Catholicum, ad instructionum conscientorum contra hereticos nostri temporis, for the instruction of preachers against the heretics of our time. He published the first volume of that in Paris in 1589, before he got his job in Leuven, while he was still teaching at Dowie in the university, not at the English college, which had moved to Reims. This was altogether a more specialized work, but it was almost as popular. Again, it ran through 20-something editions in about 30 years. And the material in it was clearly recycled from Stapleton's lectures at Dowie and then later at Leuven. But the Promptuarium Catholicum, that is the more polemical volume, must have drawn mainly on his Dowie teaching because he began to publish it before he moved to Leuven. Now, the Promptuarium Catholicum didn't offer the generalized uplift of the Promptuarium Morale. It was aimed specifically at preachers in regions like England, Germany, or the Low Countries where Catholicism confronted the Reformation eyeball to eyeball. 
And so the Promptuarium Catholicum was much more narrowly targeted and much more violently polemical. Its Sunday offerings take the form of sharp, short expositions, very rarely more than about a thousand words, just taking a single phrase or a verse from the Gospel of the day and designed specifically to, repute, uh, to refute Protestant exegesis and vindicate Catholic teaching. And that, of course, was the agenda of the scriptural instruction on offer to seminarians in the English College, wherein, as Gregory Martin explained, is urged the true advantage of the Catholic and the pretensed argument of the heretic, that students may learn out of the Holy Scriptures how to prove and disprove, confirm the truth and infirm the contrary, and to spy both the advantages of the truth and the treacheries and guiles of falsehood. Now we can be fairly sure of the direct relationship between Stapleton's polemical uh, Promptuarium Catholicum and the scriptural instruction which was on offer in the English College. As I've mentioned, Martin's translation, when it eventually appeared, came with copious marginal notes, introductions and commentary. The bulk of them were the work of William Allen himself and Richard Bristow. But although the Promptuaria uh, Catholicum lay almost a decade in the future, well, seven years, it began seven years after the publication of Martin's New Testament, these crucial marginalia and commentaries show a close correspondence and dependence on Stapleton's exegesis. For the Gospels, uh, a Gospel of St. Matthew especially, which of course most of the Sunday Gospels are drawn from St. Matthew's Gospel, they're almost certainly directly indebted to Stapleton. I can only, I've only got time to demonstrate this with a single example. The Reims Bible's notes on the figure of St. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 uh, is very, very curious. It cites the claim of St. John Chrysostom and other fathers that John was the model for the eremetic and religious life. He was the first monk. Wherewith, as the note says, the Protestants are so offended that they say St. Chrysostom spoke rashly and untruly. Despite the Gospel's description of John dwelling in the desert, his rough clothing of camel hair, and his austere diet of locusts and honey, the note goes on, they are not ashamed to pervert all three with this strange commentary that it was a desert full of towns and villages, that his garment was camlet, and his meat such as the country gave and the people there used, thereby to make him but a common man like the rest. And these very specific accusations that Protestants have watered down the austerity of John's life um, have marginal references to three sources. The Magdeburg Centuriators, that's the uh, Lutheran historians who from the 1560s onwards were uh, writing about the early church, to the obscure Rostock reformer, David Kochhafer, 
uh, who used the name Kithraeus uh, for his published works. He was a disciple of Melanchthon. And it's from him that this material about John's camel hair, not actually being camel hair, but camlet, a cloth made of rough stuff. Um, and Martin Bootser. So the Magdeburg Centuriators, Kithraeus, and Bootser. It's a rather mixed bunch. Now, if we turn from the Reims New Testament to Stapleton's homily on that passage uh, in the Promptuarium Catholicum, uh, it's the Gospel for the Second Sunday of Advent, we find precisely the same polemical points being made in the same order and illustrated with extended quotations from the same passages of the same reformers, but all at much greater length and with a blisteringly scornful commentary. Oh, delicatus homines et acutus, quiutex extreme ermo loca pascuosa et amina, sic ex vestra aspera, o barnum et elegantum noram conficere, vel potius, o homines impius, qui sic scriptura sacras noram pervertere, o you exquisite, ingenious men, who've contrived to turn the desert into a lush and charming spot, and from harsh vesture have woven elegant garments in the height of fashion, or rather, you wicked men, who have learnt thus to pervert Holy Scripture. Now, it's possible, of course, that in compiling his homily for the Promptuarium, Stapleton had the Reims New Testament note in front of him, that he went away and looked up the Protestant authors that were cited there, selected illustrative quotations from them, and expanded the compressed point scoring of the notes into a full-scale homolytic vituperation. But it's infinitely more likely that the truth is the other way round, that the brief Bible notes represent a compressed version of Stapleton's Dowie Lectures, uh, which would in due course be recycled into the Promptuarium. Stapleton himself uh, can't have written the notes. Uh, the annotations to the New Testament were composed in Reims and uh, after the college moved there, and Stapleton didn't move with the college. He stayed in his university post at Dowie. But it is overwhelmingly likely that the Reims annotator was working from detailed notes or perhaps the complete text of Stapleton's Dowie lectures on the Gospels and that he distilled them and their learned citations from European sources into the marginal note. And if that's the case, and I think it is, the reims Dowie New Testament takes on a new significance. We've long been aware of the aggressively, sometimes distressingly, polemical character of the editorial apparatus of the Reims Bible. This was Holy Scripture conceived as a fighting manual rather than an aid to devotion. The notes to Matthew chapter three are, three are entirely characteristic of the rest of the marginalia. And the point to emphasize here is that these notes and editorial commentary are not only the work of the seminary staff, but they transport us to the lecture room 
and the chapel of the first generation of Dari seminarians, a community preoccupied by the calamity of the overthrow of their church at home by a heretical regime, who were being intensively coached to confront and to resist the regime's Protestant apologists. Now, Alan understood perfectly well that he was creating a new kind of priest, well-skilled, this is him talking, well-skilled in Latin and other learned tongues, brought up to degree, both in art and in divinity, such as should never have been refused in any country Christianed, neither in this age nor of old time, to have been persons and pastors of men's souls, and some so well-learned that they might have passed with estimation to any degree of divinity in the universities, and none unfit but that they have much more convenient institution in all kind of pastoral doctrine than the common sort of curates had in the old time. But he wasn't just measuring his new priests against the unlearned parish clergy of pre-Reformation England. He told the aged Carthusian prior Morris Chauncey, who'd criticised the uh, Dowie graduates, Mercury cannot be made of every log, so not all his men were men of wit or learning. But every one of them, he insisted, could stand comparison with the products of any of the seminaries of Italy or other countries erected by commandment of the Holy Council of Trent for education and nurture of priests. And they could stand comparison, he went on to claim, even with the elite products of the Jesuits' trade, his phrase. Now, we don't have a scholarly history of Dowie College, so it's difficult to say what, if any, were the long-term consequences of this remarkable, if disconcerting, early emphasis on expertise in controversial debate and scripture study in the formation of missionary priests. The training was designed to equip men for public disputation. But by the 1590s, opportunities in England for safe disputation with Protestant opponents hardly existed. And it's likely that the seminary curriculum reflected that change and became more conventional. That certainly happened in Rome, at the Venerabili. We can't simply appropriate or even retrospectively endorse the kind of training that was given in that first generation at Dowie. From the perspective of the 21st century, the confrontational stance in which these first English seminary priests were trained, their preoccupation with Holy Scripture, conceived above all as a magazine of proof texts to vindicate Catholicism and condemn the Reformation, uh, understandable in the context of the time, is bound to trouble us in a more ecumenical age. We're conscious now not merely of the historic tragedy of Christian disunity, but of the reality of good intentions and concern for truth on both sides of the murderous religious divide which led 16th century Christians to burn or disembowel each other according to taste and local custom. But for the priests trained at Dowie, doctrinal disagreements were not intellectual or religious puzzles 
or pardonable intellectual disagreements. The points in contention between Catholic and Protestant were armed with fire and blood. They were quite literally matters of life and death. Catholic and Protestant, each in the other's eyes, were not merely mistaken, they were malicious. But whatever difficulty we might feel about an education in which theology was deployed as a weapon of religious warfare, there's no doubting the originality and brilliance and rarity with which it was pursued at Dowie and then Reims in that first Elizabethan generation. Never again would English seminaries match the urgent theological engagement and the fierce eloquence of that first age when English academics were still dominant presences in the universities of the Low Countries and when within the college itself men of the calibre of Allen, Bristow, Martin, Stapleton were teaching. Not till the 1840s and another influx of Oxford converts would English Catholicism boast such a constellation of stars. And never again would English Catholicism uh, stand at the very cutting edge of militant European Catholicism. The Reims New Testament was a pioneering and in many ways a very risky project in a church which was deeply suspicious of vernacular versions of the scriptures. European Catholic scholars in the uh, late 16th and well into the 17th, into the 1640s and 50s, were getting into trouble for advocating vernacular, the study of vernacular scripture. But for that very reason, the Reims Bible would become the standard for other pioneering responses to the spread of the Reformation. When the Polish Jesuit, Jakub Wuczek, confronted the Calvinist threat in Poland in the 1580s and 90s. It was to the example of Allen and his colleagues and to the Reims Bible that he turned, he adopted the Reims New Testament as the key precedent for the legitimacy of a Catholic vernacular Bible. And his own Polish Bible, published in 1593, pillaged the Reims Bible, for its notes and editorial apparatus. He just translated them into Polish. Jared Kilroy has demonstrated in Edmund Campion's teaching and writing in Counter-Reformation Bohemia the, religious, the way in which the religious upheavals of Reformation England cast a long shadow into the Central European Counter-Reformation. But Campion wasn't an isolated case. In the founding generation of Dowie College, and in their greatest monument, the Reims-Dowie Bible, Oxford and England helped to give the great age of Counter-Reformation a distinctively English accent. Thank you.